Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm not Stan. He has asked me to come and teach today because there's a message that God gave to me recently. It was kind of funny how it happened because on Easter Sunday, you know, Stan had his whole three weeks, his whole three week Easter series that he was doing. And so on Saturday night before Easter, he sent Jay and Cody a message and told them, hey, I'm feeling really sick tonight, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to teach tomorrow. So so me, Jay, and Cody all at the same time like rushed to get a message ready so that, when, so that if he wasn't able to be here Easter Sunday, we could have something to teach on. And through my thinking, through what I could teach, I, I came up with this idea, and it's something that... I've been teaching a lot in the youth group recently, and it's funny when I look back that literally for like the past six months, all of the messages, even though they're about completely different topics, are all about this one same thing. And it's this idea of abundant life. Now, I want to ask you guys this question. I don't want you to answer yet. I want you to think about it for a minute. When you hear the words abundant life, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Just think about that. So before we get into exactly what abundant life is, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. And by a little story, I really mean a really big story. <laughs> because when I was going through college, it was kind of funny because I had to take three different classes and three different semesters all to teach me the history of the world. Now, of course, I didn't agree with a lot of what they were teaching because they were teaching that the world was many billions of years old and that we evolved from cells and that's how we got here. And so, but it literally took a physical science class, a semester in physical science class to teach from the Big Bang to when humans actually came to be. Then a one world history class to teach from when humans came to be up until the world wars, and then another one to teach from there up till the present. And so I thought through thinking of that, that I would tell you my version of the history of the world. But of course, I've only got half an hour and not three semesters. So I did a lot of thinking, and I found out that you can summarize the whole history of the world and the whole history of the Bible in three different words. The first word is creation. In the beginning, God created a perfect world with perfect people. Now, this is something that we kind of overlook sometimes because we think about the creation, and we think about how God created everything, and he said everything was good. And then we think about how he created us, and oftentimes we forget the fact that he said we were good too at the start. Because we think about how messed up we are, how Adam and Eve fell, how all of that stuff happened. And we forget the fact that when God originally created us, he created us perfect. It literally says that he created us in his own image. And we often think of that as meaning in his physical image, which he did, but it goes farther than that. He, when Adam and Eve were created, just think about this. They were so much like God and their thoughts and their wants and their desires that every single day, God would come down to earth and walk with them. 
They were so much like God, and their thoughts and brain patterns were so much like him that he would literally come down daily to walk and talk with them throughout the garden. So when you just think of that, you've got to kind of wonder, well, how did we get to here? If we were created in literally the perfect place in the perfect world in the perfect galaxy by a perfect God, and we were created perfect, how did we get here? That brings me to the second word, and that is destruction. Because God created everything perfect, and then we messed it all up. Starts out with Adam and Eve. They were told, you have this great garden that you can go, and you can eat of anything except for the fruit of this one tree. And what did they do? They ate the fruit from that one tree. And because of that, God cursed them, and he told them that from now on, you will perish. And you will have to work the land for your food. Things aren't just going to grow for you anymore. There's all these bad things that are going to happen because of your sin. And so Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, and now they have to start working like all the rest of us do to try and survive. And eventually they have children of their own. And then as those children grow up, Cain and Abel, you see another aspect of how we destroy things. Because Cain and Abel were both trying to follow the law of God, which God had told them to make sacrifices to him. And so they would regularly bring sacrifices to God. And Cain brought sacrifice and Abel brought a sacrifice. But only Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God. And that made Cain so jealous of Abel and so angry with him that he ended up killing him. And from there, it just gets worse and worse because by the time you get down to the story of Noah, there's this passage that I want to read, and it's not going to be on the screens. But I just want you to listen to this words, these words. This is in Genesis chapter 6, and this is what the Lord is saying about the world. It says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought and imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race that I have created off the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing. All of the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them, but Noah found favor with the Lord. So we had gotten to the point where the human race was so caught up in sin that God himself, the person who can look at you and see what's in your heart, he looked at the people of the earth and said, everyone, everyone on the earth, their hearts were consistently and totally evil all except for one man. His name was Noah. And I'm not going to dwell too long on it, but I think it's a kind of cool thing to realize that literally Noah was the only man in all of the earth that followed God enough that God said that he is a righteous man. The only one on the entire planet. And so... 
God tells him, build a boat and put your family in there and I'm going to bring animals from all across the world and they're going to get in this boat because I'm going to destroy everyone on the earth because of how wicked they've become. And so Noah does this, the flood comes, wipes out everyone except for Noah and his family. And after a while, the flood waters recede and they come out and continue to live on with their lives and basically get a chance to start over. But things still don't go exactly as they should because it wasn't before long that the world had gotten just as bad as it was before. Maybe not quite as bad. There were still some people who followed God, but many nations had been formed of people who consistently turned away from God and worshipped gods that they had created. And so in all of this, God finds this person whose name is Abram, and he tells him, I'm going to make your descendants into a nation that will be mine, a nation that will be set apart from all of the other people in the world, all the people who have turned away from me. Out of your descendants, I'm going to make a nation of people who will be my people, who will follow me, and I will call them my own. So this promise gets passed down from Abraham down to Isaac, down to Jacob, and eventually it comes down to this man called Joseph. And Joseph was a good man. He followed God in everything he did. And it says multiple times throughout his story that God was with him. And he, he was a good man. And then his brothers decided to beat him up and throw him into a well. And then they decided to sell him into slavery. And then while he was in slavery, he was accused of trying to rape someone. And so he got put in prison. So all this bad stuff happens to him. And then, but the cool thing is through all of that, he got the chance to speak to Pharaoh. And because he got the chance to speak to Pharaoh, he was literally brought from being a prisoner to being the second in command in all of the land of Egypt. And because of him, thousands of people survived a huge famine that was coming. And so we move on from then. Through him, the nation of Israel was actually formed. As he brought his family into Egypt, the Israelite people grew massively and became the nation of Israel inside Egypt. But the Egyptians were afraid, so they enslaved the Israelites and made them work so hard that many of them even died trying to work for them. And so they cried out to God and said, God, free us from this. And God heard their cry, and he sent a man named Moses to go and rescue them. And by the way, Moses did not at all want to rescue them. Literally, when God speaks to him, he begs God, send anyone but me. I don't want to have to do this. Send anyone else but me. But God convinces him to go, and through Moses, God does many miracles to free the Israelites from Egypt. And so they come out of Egypt. They're now finally the nation of Israel. They are being led by God out of Egypt. And you would think that things would be better now. <laughs> but they don't. Because <laughs> you see, as soon as they leave Egypt and they start walking in the wilderness, they come up to Moses and they're like, we don't have food. We don't have water. Why would you and your God bring us out here just to die? And they start cursing, they start cursing Moses and they start cursing God because they don't have food and water. 
Well, then God decides that he's going to provide that for them. And so he inconsistently provides food and water for them every single day while they're out in the wilderness. Well, then Moses goes up to speak with God to get to the Ten Commandments that God wanted to share with Israel. And as he goes to do that, the Israelites literally create a golden calf and start worshiping it as their own God. Now, we often forget how close this is to the time in Israel, but they had just left Israel. I'm not just left Israel. They had just left Egypt. Just a few days ago, they left Egypt, and they saw how God rescued them over and over again. He did all these great miracles for them as they leave Egypt. And immediately, they turn their back on him. And so this is a pattern that just keeps going and going and going where they do, they turn away from God and God rescues them. And then as soon as they get free from God's control, they turn away from him again. And so eventually God leads them into the promised land. Through all of the problems they had, finally they get into the promised land and they conquer the land. And now you would think things are going good. Because the nation of Israel, they're led by God. They are now in the land that God promised to give them. But still, they will not listen to God. Because then, they, it literally says, Joshua led them into the promised land. And then as soon as he dies, it says they turn their back on God. And so God would punish them. And then they would cry out to God and say, God, please save us. And so then he would raise up someone who was filled with his spirit to go in and free them from the punishment they had been put in and then guide them in the ways of the Lord. And so every time that this person would die, Literally, it's almost funny when you read it. Literally, within the next two or three sentences, it says, and they turn their back on God. Now, this happened 12 times. 12 times, Israel turned their back on God. God punished them. Then he sent someone to save them from the punishment. And as soon as that person would die, they would turn away from God again. And so then after the 12 judges had come, God sent Samuel to be a prophet, to be the voice of God among the people. And the people liked him, and the people did follow him. But eventually, as he was getting old, they were like, we want to be like all the other nations. Because you see, right now, we don't have a king, which they did. Their king was God, but they didn't realize that. They're like, we want to be like every other nation which has a king. And so they came to Samuel and told him, we want to have a king. And he went to God, and God said, do what they want, but warn them first of what's going to happen. And so Samuel comes to them and warns them and tells them, if you get a king, all of this bad stuff is going to happen. He's going to take all of the best land in Israel. He's going to take a large portion of all of your crops and all of your livestock, and that's all going to be his. And if the king turns bad, there's nothing you can do about it now. Because you don't have any control of what that king is going to do. But they still said, we want a king. And so God lets them get a king. Saul becomes the king of Israel. And very soon they realize that Saul is not a good king. He started out great. When he started out, he was trying to follow the will of God. He was a pretty good leader. He was good in battle. 
all of this stuff that made Israel love him. But then one time he made a mistake and turned away from God. And because of that, God told him, you are no longer going to be the king of Israel and I, my spirit is no longer going to be with you because I've already chosen someone who is better than you, someone who is like me, and he is going to be the new king. And so Saul goes on this really <laughs> downhill slope, getting worse and worse until finally he's killed in battle and David becomes the new king. So now things have got to be looking up, right? Because now they've, they're in the promised land, and the king that God says, this person is after my own heart. This person thinks just like me. He's the new king. Well, even while David is the king, they continually try to rebel from God. And he tries to keep them on the right path and mostly does. But just like with all the other times, as soon as he dies, things start to go downhill. And so Israel gets this long line of kings that come. And literally, it is like this. Good. Bad. Worse, terrible, okay, bad, worse, worse, worse. And it, when you look, it's funny when you read the Bible in Kings because it's literally like this king was bad, this king was worse than the last, this king was even worse than the last, this king was even worse than the last one, over and over and over again. And Israel slowly again begins to turn away from God. And so God, kind of as a last resort effort, starts sending these prophets to Israel. And he's like, just listen to me sends these people to tell them, this is not a good path. There are consequences for your sins. And if you do not turn back, there will be trouble. And they consistently ignored them, slandered the prophets, and even killed some of them. Until finally, silence. Very long period of complete silence from God. I've gotten me thinking that by the time that Jesus comes back, there are probably very few people, even though there are religious leaders, there are probably very few people who really believe in the true God of their ancestors. And those who do are probably really confused because they've probably heard the stories of how he showed up and did miraculous signs to free them from Israel. He's, they've heard the stories of how God was always there and helped them conquer all of the promised land and always saved them from their enemies and now they are in Roman captivity and nothing, complete silence, until the day that Jesus came. This brings me to my third word, which is redemption. God came to save us from the mess that we had made. You see, God sent Jesus to this earth. Jesus was unlike any person who had ever walked on this earth earth before. He did things that were completely impossible. He healed sick people. He turned water into wine. He took a couple of loaves of bread and some fish and multiplied it to feed 5,000 people. And he didn't teach like anyone before had either. You see, he taught things like the first will be last and the last will be first. Now that's contradictory to what we think. The person who makes themselves the highest on earth will be the lowest in heaven. And the person who makes himself the lowest on earth will be the highest in heaven. And he regularly ate with people who were known sinners. People who all the religious leaders would completely ignore. And Jesus 
took 12 men that the world would have never chosen for anything, 12 men that were the lowest of below, 12 men that were complete sinners, and he used them to change the whole world. He rebuked the prideful priests, and he praised the repentant sinners. He shows kindness and mercy to everyone he met. He never glorified himself, but instead humbled himself. He always served others without expecting to be served back. He was perfect in every way and completely sinless. Yet, going back to the destruction part, we rejected him. The people who he came to save turned their backs on him and said, we're not going to follow you. They abused him. They beat him. They tortured him. They had nails driven into his hands and his feet. And he was hung on a cross. And he died for our sins. He died so that he could clean up the mess that we had made. He died because he could not stand the thought of us having to go into eternal damnation. He couldn't stand the thought of living eternity without having us with him. And he died so that we would be completely free from the power of sin. And so that we would no longer have to fear anything anymore. And he died so we could once again have a relationship with the Father like we did when Adam and Eve were created. He died to make us whole and he died to make us perfect like we were before. But of course, he didn't stay down there because he rose from the grave victorious. He rose literally with the keys of death in his hands and he said, you no longer have to fear anything because I have overcome the world. And now, anyone who believes in him will be saved from their sin because all power and authority in heaven and earth is vested in his name and his name alone. So, how does this all pertain to abundant life? It's a really cool story. It's a lot of meaning through it. But how does this all connect with abundant life? Well, I want to read you this verse. And it's John chapter 10, verse 10. And it says, this is Jesus' words, and he says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. Now, I just want you to think for a second what life would have been like if he had left off the last part of that verse. If he just said, I have come so they may have life. That was his whole purpose here. Because you see, if he hadn't said that, then there's no promise that our lives would have been good here. He came so that we could live and live with him eternally. But what happens here? What happens now? And that's why it's so important that after that, he doesn't just say, I gave them life. He says, but I have come so that they may have life more abundantly. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to make two notes here. And again, the, it's John 10, 10. And so your, your Bible, your version probably says it a little bit differently than this. But 
where it says abundantly, or there's some translations that say, like, live life to the full, where you see that written, however you like to take notes in your Bible, just, like, circle that, draw a line. That's what I usually do. I circle it, draw a line off to the side, and write something where there's space to write. Well, somehow, beside where it says abundantly, I want you to write two words. The first word is peace, and the second word is joy. And then where it says more, right, right before, where it says more, I want you to write two other words. And those two words are overflowing and beyond measure. Because you see, when you study what an abundant life is in the Bible, an abundant life is a life that is filled with peace and joy. And when you see that word more behind it, this is kind of funny how much power we lose when we translate things into into English. Because when we say more, it's like, oh, you have more. Like, if I have three apples and mom has five apples, then she has more apples than me. It's just that simple. That's not what this is meaning. It would literally be as if I were to say more, 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 more. It literally means to be overflowing and to be beyond measure. So a life that is more abundant, a more abundant life, is a life that is overflowing with joy and peace to the point where it cannot be measured. Now, just off of that, who here would like to have an abundant life? Just raise your hand. A life that is so filled with joy and peace that it cannot be measured. So, how do you get an abundant life? Well, before I tell you that, I want to do something. I know I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to do it pretty quick. But I want to tell you this history of the world again. But this time I want to tell you in a bit of a different context, because this is something you have to understand fully before you can fully get an abundant life. So I'm going to tell you the history of the world, but this time I've summed it down into just one word. And that word is love. Now think about this. It was because of love that when Adam and Eve sinned, even though God had told them the penalty of this is death, it was because of love for them they said, I'm going to spare you. There will be consequences but you will be spared. It was because of love that God rescued Joseph and gave him control of the entire land of Egypt so that he could save the people around him. It was because of love that God created the nation of Israel in the first place. He created them to be a people that was so set apart from the world, a people that was his people, so that he could have an intimate relationship with them, and everyone would know God is with these people. It was because of love that when the Israelites left Egypt and they started complaining, God was patient with them, and God provided them everything they need. Even though they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided everything they need throughout that whole journey. 
And it was because of love that God led them into the promised land, that he fulfilled his promise to them and said, even though you have messed up so many times so far, even though you have turned your back on me many times, and I know you'll do it many more, I'm still going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to give you this land. It was because of love for the people of Israel that when they consistently turned their back on God and worshipped other gods, God over and over and over again sent them people to show them the right path, to save them from the consequences of their sin and show them how to live the way he wanted them to. And it was because of love that God warned the Israelites, you don't need a king, just Listen to me. Follow me. And it was because of love that when they still turned his back on when they still turned their back on him over and over and over again, that he said, I'm not giving up on you. I have another plan. I know how to fix this. It was because of love that God sent his own son to this earth. It was because of love that Jesus came down himself. Jesus was in paradise, in heaven. He was surrounded by armies of angels that never stopped singing his praises. And he said, I love these people so much that I'm going to come down here. And don't think for a second that Jesus didn't know what was going to happen to him. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew what he was going to have to go through. Yeah, he said, I love them enough that I will go through it anyways. I love them enough that I will come down to this world. I will accept being rejected by them. I will accept being beaten and tortured by them. I will let them put nails in my hands and my feet. I will let them hang me on a cross that should be theirs. I should be the one hanging them on a cross, but I love them so much that I will let them do it to me. (laughs) Thank you. So that I so that they don't have to pay the price. And it was because of his love for us that when he rose from the grave, he didn't just go back into heaven and leave things as it were, but he came to us even though all of the disciples touted him. All of them were saying, well, what is going on? Because we thought he was the son of God, but he died. But he stayed and encouraged them and told them, it's fine. And even he went to Peter, who denied him three times and told him, I still love you. And you can still serve me. It was because of his love for the whole world that he told told the disciples as he was ascending into heaven, go and tell the world. Go to the ends of the earth and tell people. That about this good news. Tell them that I've come to save them and tell them that they can live an abundant life if they will follow me. So, how do you get an abundant life? There are five words, very easy to say, very hard to follow. It's very simple. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's why we sang that song today. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Think about the lyrics of that song. We sing it a lot, but really think about what it's saying. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, the only way that an abundant life works is when we trust God with everything. Is when we surrender everything to God. You know, when I say turn your eyes upon Jesus, we can often think of just like looking to God, like, yeah, all right, looking to God. But it's not just saying glance at God. It's literally saying, tell your eyes, you are going to look to Jesus. No matter what, no matter how bad things are around here, you are going to look to Jesus and to Jesus alone. And the cool thing about this whole thing is that, yeah, it's hard to give up everything to follow Jesus. Yeah, it's hard to lose control of your life. But Jesus says, I will help you. You know, I was teaching, it was probably like a year ago now, I was teaching in the youth group um, about prayer. I did a long series on prayer and what prayer really is and what it means. And one big thing God showed me through that was that throughout the Bible, he says, I am always there to help you. I will help you through anything, no matter what it is. Literally, the entire power of God is willing to help you in any situation. But there's one condition. You have to start. You have to take that first step. Because the thing he showed me was he's always willing to help. But your prayer is what releases his power. He's standing there waiting for you to take the first step and you to say, I am going to do this even though it's hard, even though I don't really want to do this, even though the whole world tells me this is a bad idea, I'm going to start this. As soon as you do, the entire power of God is right there with you, helping you through everything. So all it takes is you taking that first step. 